This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. In the energy world, this has been a hard week due to big drop in oil prices, but it's also a very exciting week because this is the week America becomes a global super power. Because this month, in, in the month of January, we've seen uh, two shipments. Well, one was New Year's Eve, but it was maybe not quite January, but really close. We saw our first shipment of oil leave our shores. And then a week later, we saw the second shipment of oil leave our shores since the oil export ban was lifted. And you know, a lot of people in the industry poo-pooed the idea that lifting the oil export ban was important, but also expected this week, maybe next week, but in January, is going to be the first shipment of LNG to leave our shores, and I've been following the LNG story at, at uh, Chenier Energy's Sabine Pass Terminal for several years, and I've been like, when is it going to happen, when is it going to happen? And when I realized the confluence of events taking place in this one month, I was so excited to write on that. I did my research and looked up stuff on both stories and thought, no one has connected these stories. And then... I ran across a piece in Bloomberg that had my friend Phil Flynn talking about how wonderful it is that these two things are happening in one month. Darn, it wasn't my original idea, and I have been so excited about it. But even though I'm mad at Phil Flynn for stealing my idea or getting out ahead of me with it, I'm excited to have him with us today for the first section segment of America's Voice for Energy. Phil Flynn, as you may know, is a Fox business contributor. You may often see him on the air with Neil Cavuto. Every now and then they let him on the Big Fox also because I see him there. Uh, he's also the senior, oh, I feel I know I keep messing this up, the se- senior financial analyst senior for the price. price group. There you go. All right. Oh, senior market analyst for Price Futures like Group. You say it better, though. It sounds good. <laughs> well, you're so nice. Thanks for joining us today. So, so obviously, you saw the news story here in this confluence of events. It is. I mean, this is a historic turning point in the U.S. energy story. Uh, because and aren't you shocked? Nobody but us is talking about it. I know what's the matter with these people. They should be listening uh, to your show, and they would have these ideas themselves. Yeah, Fox Business hasn't talked about it, have they? Uh, we did talk about it on Fox. All right, well, I missed yeah, that. I tend to watch tough. Fox, regular right. Fox more, but all right, so right, Fox right. Business talked about right. it with well, you. Well, turn on Maria's in the morning, and you can tune in and see me uh, there every morning, and we talk about all these energy stories, and it is a historic turning point. I mean, and, and it's something that people would have thought was impossible back in 2007 and 2008. You know, when we had peak oil, the world was running out of oil, and, oh, my gosh, it's going to be like Mad Max the movie, right? We're all going to be fighting over the last drop of oil to keep our uh, our, our water skis going or whatever, our jet skis going. <laughs> but, um, but then all of a sudden this fracking revolution changed the world. You know what, you know, what I think is really interesting, Marita, Alan Greenspan back in 2002 or three, you know, early 2000s, came out and said, you know what, the biggest threat that I see for the U.S. economy uh, is our inability to import liquefied natural gas. Because at that time, the demand for natural gas in this country was skyrocketing. Um, mm-hmm. 
we're running out of supply. Canada said, hey, guys, I, I, we love selling you natural gas, but if push comes to shove in a cold winter, we're, we're going to cut you off. Uh, and Alan Greenspan said we had to do something to import natural gas. Well, guess what? Uh, Ten years later, 12 years later, now we're becoming an exporter. So that is an amazing turn of events. It is an amazing turn of events, and I've been excited to, to follow that. When I first got into this industry, now nearly 10 years ago, I was writing about importing LNG. Were, and and it was amazing. You were only five years old at the time. <laughs> that was amazing. I don't know. You're just a genius. Yeah, child prodigy. That's it. That's it. Yeah, and so what do you see that this means for the gas markets? I mean, you, this is what you do. You're, you're the market analyst. What do you see this means for the American natural gas industry? Uh, you know, I mean, this is huge. I mean, right now, uh, the U.S. natural gas industry uh, it has been a victim of their own success. You yeah, know, it's a line uh, I use a lot. Yeah, they really are. I mean, they you know they went out and said, "Hey, we're going to change the world." Nobody said he could do it, and they went ahead and did it anyway. And they did it so well, uh, they put themselves out of business because they're producing uh, at a prolific rate. And and even though you know we get this false sense of security about our, our production capabilities, which we should have, you know, the low prices has really hurt the distribution side of the network. You know, we're not building enough pipelines right now to get it to where it needs to go. Uh, we're wasting a lot of gas, uh, burning it off, and mm -hmm. uh, it, we're not being very efficient with it. But this is going to be one of the first steps to becoming more efficient down the road uh, in, in taking advantage of these natural resources that we have. Now, I've had a real difficult time getting any information out of Chenier Energy. They've been really closed-lipped on this, but I understand that this shipment that is expected to go out on the uh, tanker Energy Atlantic uh, that is supposed to go out this week could be next week. Uh, do you? And this is a test cargo. They don't expect to be into commercial shipments until a little later in this year. Do you? That's what I know. Do you have any more insight on that than I do? Um, I don't. And I know that uh, the last that I had heard that they were already filling the ship. Uh, with with the natural gas. Well, they what what they they were already liquefying the natural gas, but the ship was not due into port. And I was following it on Marine Tracker, and I have not checked it today. But okay. it was not due into port in Sabine at the Sabine Pass terminal until Tuesday, January twelfth. Ah, so it's going to be at least at the earliest. Well, if it's going to get there at the 12th, it's going to take uh, obviously at least 20 to 48 hours to fill it up, if not longer. So, um, yeah. It, yeah, so that's why I say it could be this week. The first shipment could be this week. But when we pop the champagne when it goes, what if we miss that? I mean, we're just going to have to celebrate every day, I guess. That's what my could Well, you know, it's funny you mention that because an interesting thing for me, I, was, I try to write my article on Friday, but I tend to not get to it till Saturday. I put it off till I'm closer to the deadline. And Saturday morning I got up and I got online and I looked to see had that second tanker, the Enterprise Products uh, Partners tanker, left the Houston port yet because it was supposed to leave either Thursday night or Friday morning. And I spent the first hour, I spent an hour Friday, Saturday morning fresh out of bed searching has this left. I could not find a news story anywhere saying it left. I finally tracked down their PR guy for Enterprise Partners product, or Products Partners and he returned my phone. He called me back and he said it is due to leave the dock in 10 minutes. 
He said it was delayed due to fog. And I hung up from him. I literally clapped, and now I had my motivation to write my column because it was, it was leaving the dock, and while I was writing, I watched Marine Tracker and literally watched where the ship was going. So, you know, we can do that with the other one. But it is. It's very exciting to see these milestones happening in the energy industry. Right. I think it's very, very exciting for sure. How long do you think it will be before the LNG export impacts the price of natural gas? I, I think by the, I think you know we, we live in a world of a futures market, so I, I would wouldn't be surprised that the market is already speculating uh, on when that's going to happen. And you know we have a glut of supply right now, so the market is very very calm. And um, uh, but. I would expect um, late 2016, early 2017, uh, people are going to be afraid um, to um, to um, um, to to uh, keep things going for sure. So, so do you? But you're not seeing. You haven't seen any blip in the price of natural gas like now because of this occurrence happening. It just you know because often you see stuff. We saw the sp the spread between Brent and WTI disappear just on the assumption that the export ban was going to be lifted. It was the, the spread disappeared before the ban was lifted. So sometimes, you know, the market anticipates. They do, absolutely. And, and they're already figuring their math when they think that this is going to impact prices, bring prices up. And one of the things that you have to remember is that we're going to see um, you know, because LNG is going into an international market, um, it will be harder to detect an impact on the prices here in the United States, the, the Henry Hub contract, the ones that we trade, um, because the LNG market sometimes trades a lot differently than, say, the markets here in the, you know, the futures markets that we trade. Um, but you're definitely going to start to see uh, an impact um, in the LNG market by the end of 2016, early 2017, because you've got a new, a, a, you know, a new sheriff in town, a new exporter. It's going to give more uh, pricing power. Um, uh, excuse me. It's going to give more buying power to to the people that have been desperately trying to secure new ways to to get LNG. You know, places in Asia. Japan in particular, um, it's going to help them out dramatically in, in, in Europe as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting news to, to see, and I hope that's good news for our uh, natural gas producers. You know, I'm based in New Mexico, and our natural gas uh, guys are just suffering terribly. They've capped wells, and, and you know, they, they just can't afford to sell it at the current price. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Um, I agree, and and I I mean I think there's going to be more pain. I hate to say it, um, in the short term for the producers, and um, you know, we saw that report, of course, from the Wall Street Journal yesterday, which I agree with. I think that there's a possibility we could see one third of all, you know, U.S. oil and gas producers go out of business or go bankrupt or restructure this year, and that obviously is going to have an impact on, on prices down the road. Uh, you know, the sad news is when it comes to a bottom in a market like this, it's oversupplied, you know, the only way you're going to get an addition is by subtraction. And that means, you know, we're going to have to knock a few producers uh, out of business. And I'm sad to say I think that's going to happen. 
Yeah, I'm sad to say it, it, it will as well. I agree. It, it, it's, it's a tough time. Now, we only have like a minute or so left. What do you think the geopolitical implications are for the price of oil uh, with Saudi Arabia and Iran? And uh, I think that short-term, everybody's taking it as bearish because these tensions will lead both countries to produce as much oil. It will be harder for them to coordinate on a production cut, so short-term, it's bearish. But make no mistake about it, Marita. If, if you get into a shooting war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, if supplies are cut off from either one of those countries for an extended period of time, um, that oil is not going to be easily made up. You know, if you think that, you know, Saudi Arabian exports get cut off or the Strait of Hormuz is shut down for 48 hours, that the shale producers are going to be able to replace that oil. Um, the sad truth is, is it can't happen. You know, we keep talking about this glut right now. You know, right now uh, we're producing one and a half million barrels of oil a day more than we produce. But that's not that much, really. When you think of the whole global scale of oil, it's a few percentage points. Um, and so if we lost, you know, Saudi Arabian oil, we would have a, a production deficit, obviously a, a major production deficit that you couldn't make up. So, no, you don't want to freak out like we did in the old days when there's tensions in the Middle East and run the price of oil up because there is a bigger cushion of supply. Uh, but at the same time, you don't want to get too complacent either to think that this you know, uh, confrontation won't end to uh, lead to a, a loss of supply, because if it ever does, um, you'd be surprised how quickly this market could move up. Yeah. It's going to be, it's an interesting time to watch. Phil Flynn from the Price Futures Group, thank you for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. Great to be here, and let's celebrate oil exports and LNG exports. Woo-hoo! Every American <laughs> should be doing the same thing. But we should. Thanks so much, Phil. We'll, we'll toast to that. Bye-bye. Thank you. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about uh, an amazing confluence of events, and that is the lifting of the oil export ban that allowed the first shipments of 
oil to be exported from our shores and the first shipment of LNG to leave our shores in decades happening within literally days of each other. And so now I'm delighted to have back with me my friend Tim Snyder. And Tim and I together co-host a show every Thursday in Lubbock, Texas, a live hour and a half show. And we have a great time uh, bantering back and forth. And Tim is so knowledgeable on all issues energy that I've invited him to talk to us today about how this is going to impact uh, uh, the, the markets for oil and for natural gas and, and what's going to be the benefit to America. So, Tim, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to join us again today. Well, thanks, Marita. I appreciate you uh, asking me. You know, you and I always have such fun talking about energy, and we talked on the radio last week about these occurrences, and it was fun for me, as you know, that uh, while I was writing, the second shipment of oil left the Houston port. So it was kind of, I felt like I was like experiencing history being made. Why do you think this is an important thing? Well, there's a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. First of all, what it did was is, you know, we finally uh, brought the uh, West Texas Intermediate crude oil into the position that it really needs to be as, as the world's leader in energy production from the standpoint of not only crude oil but natural gas and, and, and other sources uh, as well. Uh, it, it put us in a position where the WTI doesn't doesn't didn't trade at a discount. We've actually run nearly at par with the Brent crude, which means we're running roughly at the same price that the that the North crude, uh, the Brent crude, the North Sea crude uh, is trading at. And then, of course, it, as we look at the uh, basket of prices that OPEC uh, sends out and posts every Monday, um, you know, it, it just it began to globalize that market. That's a, that's a good that's a good thing from the standpoint of, you know, um, it put us on a greater world stage. Number one, number two, it it levels prices, and, the, and really the most important thing that I see here is it gives us the opportunity in, to instead of being a price taker with um, with a crude oil that does, that at the time back last year and last forty years we weren't able to ship out of the U S. It gives us the opportunity to be a price maker, a market maker, and that gives us competitive opportunities uh, as well, and that, that's really good for the American producer, and it's good for the consumer as well. Yeah, and so how does it directly benefit the American producer? Well, from the standpoint of competition is always the, the, the best writing tool that we have, writing, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's very important for that to happen, and we can get better price discovery in this. We don't have to accept a you know accept a price that is discounted because it's not able to ship, and that's a that's a good thing for our producers. And right now, we need to have opportunities. We you know the 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 ga the, the products, the gasoline, the diesel, the LNG, you know, a number of things have had the opportunity to be shipped. Although LNG is just that's a recent uh, ad that we've had just uh, last uh, week. Um, but it's it's been an opportunity for the gasoline producers and the diesel producers that if the market in the United States is too fat like it is right now, this market is fat with, 
with gasoline and diesel. Uh, the uh, EIA report just came out, the inventory report just came out and showed a tremendous build once again this week in, in uh, gasoline and diesel fuel. Well, if, the, if there's too much gasoline and diesel fuel in storage, we have to be able to export it. And that's the same thing that we're sitting, sitting there looking at with crude oil. We were bumping up against the stops in crude oil storage, and now we have the opportunity to turn around and sell it and keep liquid, and that's important. You know, you're talking about the, the quantities and storage and being fat and all that. Can you explain, you know, we just had Phil Flynn on, and you know, you know who Phil is and oh, yeah. enjoy his, his entertaining uh, reports on Fox Business. And um, what, what you do is a little different. Can you explain for our listeners kind of what your focus is? And then I know you put out a daily kind of market report that's, that's unique or maybe d- different. Uh, can you explain kind of your role here? Yeah, you bet. I'm an applied economist, which means I, I take the uh, macro, uh, macroeconomic information that comes out, like today's uh, DOE report, last night's API report, and I put it in a form that allows a business, um, gives them the opportunity to make their plans for the day, for the, uh, uh, for the next half day, for the next day, for the week, for the month, for the year. Um, we we uh, provide economic assistance and and we you know we help them understand when we watch the futures markets and see how how those markets are trading. It's it's important to see that um, you know there's there's a reason behind the re- you know why crude oil went from being up you know over a dollar uh, this morning to now it's flat. It's back at at uh, you know thirty dollars and forty five cents. So thirty forty four is the last trade on crude oil. Um, you know, it's it's important to be able to put that information together, and that's the service that I provide. And it's really an educational tool as much as it is anything because uh, markets can be quite compl- complicated. And, and that's the thing that I see with Phil and, and Phil's reports that he gives on Fox Business is, is uh, he, he provides very valuable data. Yeah, but you're, you're kind of targeting more... Uh, I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the energy users rather than the investors. I'm a little bit far. Yeah, I'm a little bit farther downstream than where Phil is. Um, I started crude oil. Uh, you know, Phil probably more than likely finishes at crude oil. I started crude oil and going to the products, and then of course we, we go a little bit farther downstream and and deal with distribution and uh, you know different pad pricing and those kinds of things. Pad, pads are the uh, uh, petroleum districts that we have uh, here in the United States. So that's that's where I focus the majority of my. Uh, of my writing when I when I send this information out to uh, to my folks on a daily basis. Okay, and so if our listeners want to receive that or are interested in that that aspect of the market, how can they get that? The best way to do that is to send me an email at t snyder at propetroleum dot com, and we'll add them to our list. Uh, right now, it's a, it is a free service. Um, it, that may change in the near future. There's just lots of things on the future we've got to be able to take care of our folks. <laughs> we, all, we, we all do need to take advantage of the opportunities uh, as they present themselves. So I appreciate you sharing that, that uh, perspective. Now, let's talk a little bit about LNG. Uh, do what, with the LNG exports, we know that this Chenier Energy has been real closed-lipped 
about uh, what's going on. I've had a hard time getting information from them. I did communicate with them in writing my article, and they wouldn't give me anything quotable. They just confirmed that the first shipment would be leaving this month, and that's really all they would tell me. And when I talked to Phil, he didn't know anything else. But I do know uh, from reporting that's out there that this shipment is a test cargo, and they are expecting additional test cargoes and don't expect commercial shipments until a little later this year. What impact do you see that this is going to have on uh, natural gas prices? Well, you know, once again, it's just like... And when, and when. Yeah, I, I think, I really do think this is going to be something we see third quarter of this year. Um, I think it's going to be when they when they actually go into uh, the actual marketing, shipping, and marketing of the LNG. It's a wonderful thing that they're being able to do. Um, you know, you've got to take that gas, get it down the pipe. You've got to get it to the the, cons- the condensing station, and and they've got to cool it and do all the things that they have to do to be able to get it on a ship to get it stable. Um, it's it's uh, I think it's a great thing. We've got so much natural gas in the United States, and we have such desperate players across the country across the world that uh, we can we can make a difference and you know we can be a good partner that's the, that's the thing about the United States is we're a reputable dependable partner and that's you know that's where this makes a big difference for us and can take some of the geopolitical risk out of their marketplace yeah, and that's, we're going to be talking um, with Bill Murray from Real Clear Energy next, and uh, he, we're going to be talking very specifically about the geopolitical implications of, of exporting oil, uh, but I'm sure we'll talk about natural gas as well. He wrote a piece that I found in Real Clear Energy where he talked about that specifically, but that's, that's uh, an important thing. And what about the trade deficit? Well... You know, there's there's so much more of the trade deficit than just energy type products. You know, there's, sure. there's a lot of issues that we're dealing with here. One of the things that that will affect our trade deficit as we as we continue to watch is if you watch the Chinese economy, the Chinese economy is contracting. Um, we've gone from they guaranteed 12% uh, growth in their economy to then they were telling us that they were at a 7% growth point, and now we actually believe it's somewhere between 2 and 4%. Um, that means that they're exporting less products. That may be a little bit better for our trade deficit that we have. It probably can bolster just a little bit. Um, the issue is, is, you know, balance of trade is, is – uh, an issue that when you've globalized so much of the marketplace, and, 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 you know, it's not just, I mean, the agricultural markets have it, the energy markets have it, the metals have it, uh, steel, um, you know, all the industrial products, those kinds of things. Um, we, we've got to find some sort of balance in there, and we've not had a... a, a... And, and why, is, why is that important? Why should the average American, when I'm on radio shows as I was last night in Albuquerque, I have a difficult time kind of explaining to the average listener, why does the trade deficit matter? Well, you know, it's important if you look at it from, the, from a, a strictly trade standpoint. Since we've globalized everything, and I say everything, we've not globalized everything, but so much of our... Yeah, you're right. It's a broad statement, broad yeah, brush. It, it is. Um, the point is, um, you know, we can... A disruption in, in uh, the uh, returnable product or a, a product that we import could be... Uh, devastating. Look at Apple. Apple's a very good example. Um, so much of the Apple computer or Apple uh, iPhones and iPads and those kinds of things are produced in China or in that part of the world. If there is a disruption because they can't get the minerals or the things that they need, silver and copper, to make the, the products and they can't sit, 
set it back, or they're having issues with uh, the you know growth and development development uh, GDP in their country and can't get those shipments to the United States, then we're all of a sudden prices will go up here in the United States because we can't you know we can't keep up with demand. So that could that could be a very disruptive force. Yeah. Well, it's it's an it's interesting times to watch, and I appreciate uh, your sharing your insights. We've got just about one minute left. Anything else that you want to add on on this uh, oil and gas topic? No, I can tell you that that uh, you know keep your eyes on uh, thirty dollars is a psychological low uh, for crude oil right now. If we break below that, the next technical support layer area uh, in crude oil is probably in the twenty dollar. Uh, and that's what a lot of people have been predicting. Yeah, it's kind of scary. It, it really is kind of scary. I think the only thing that's going to make that change is going to be geopolitical. So hopefully your next guest will be able to, to give you some light. Yeah, that's what we're going to be talking about specifically. So, Tim Snyder, I appreciate you uh, joining us once again on America's Voice for Energy. It's always a, a treat to have your insights, and uh, we'll look forward to the next time you're with us. Thanks, Marita. Thanks, Tim. Have a great day. Thank you. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be talking with Bill Murray from Real Clear Energy. Stay tuned. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot Conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking with Phil Flynn, talking about the markets and oil and natural gas and the effect of exporting. My friend economist, macroeconomist uh, Tim Snyder, talked to us about, about pricing issues as well. And now we're going to move to kind of the geopolitical implications of this wonderful confluence of exporting our oil and our LNG, our natural gas through LNG. And we're talking now with Bill Murray, who is a senior editor for Real Clear Energy. And I have to say I'm always excited when I see that Real Clear Energy has picked up one of my columns and posted it. And, uh, Bill, it makes a big difference. I notice on uh, Oil Pro, which is where you picked up this week's column from, it makes a big difference on the number of views my column gets when you talk about it. So obviously, Real Clear Energy has a big influence out there, and I'm pleased to meet you and have you with us on America's Voice for Energy for the first time. Well, happy to be here, and uh, Happy New Year to everyone. It's uh, an interesting time to talk about uh, the subject. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Yeah, you know, when I was doing my research to write this column, there were there really was very little out there. It seems like the news cycle 
really kind of missed this uh, uh, exciting event, and there was really very little about the oil exports going out and, and virtually nothing on LNG, because, of course, it hasn't happened yet. That first shipment of LNG could be happening literally uh, any mm-hmm. day, but there was very little on that, and then there was even less on uh, the geopolitical implications, and that's what you wrote about, and that's where I kind of reached out to you. So let's, let's uh, go that direction and talk about how these, this exporting of U.S. resources for the first time in 40 years, basically, our, our resources are impacting the global market, and what's that do to the geopolitics? Well, it's, it's interesting. One of the reasons uh, I wrote the LNG story first back in the middle of December talking about how as the U.S. starts to export its LNG and its natural gas, uh, it's one of the biggest demonstrations of U.S. Uh, political power in, in decades because 10 years ago we were assuming that we were going to be importing enormous amounts of natural gas, that we would be dependent on, on imports from places that uh, were less secure and that would be sending money overseas and the current account deficit would uh, be affected and all these weaknesses of the dollar and jobs and everything that we were talking about. And then 10 years later, of course, we have a reverse taking place and uh, LNG starting to move off the Gulf Coast here in the beginning of this year. The oil exports caught us a bit off off guard. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and it's surprising. It wasn't really until the middle of December when people realized that this push to lift the ban on exports of oil that had been around since 1975, was finally going to take place. And there were lots of different reasons, the politics, the trade-outs with, with renewables um, and, and getting an omnibus bill. But the point is, the larger point, is that now the U.S. is in some ways returning to the past, to the, say the mid-20th century, where it had a lot of leverage and a lot of economic power in the way it used its exports and its fossil fuels um, and much of the march in the middle of the 20th century, much of the, the Cold War dynamics had to do with trade patterns that related to oil and the fact that the U.S. had an abundance of oil and the Texas Railroad Commission was able to basically keep control of the price and the volatility down, all these things that are kind of in the, way in the background now in history uh, and that w- was lost in the late 20th century are now returning. And it's, it's a fascinating topic, and it's... It's lost right now because prices are in, in you know quite low, but it's going to return because these prices don't prices don't stay low, low forever. <laughs> yeah. So where do you see the biggest geo, geopolitical um, asset? Who who benefits from our exports? The the exports it depends on what we're talking about. The oil exports the prices are so low now that it's it's tough to say who will receive any in the next year or so. But what happens when you say the thought, the thought experiment that I did was back in 2011, we saw the Libya uh, civil war take place and we lost over a million barrels a day, essentially permanently now. Um, and if the export ban, the oil export ban had been lifted before then, it's not a big surprise that we will have seen a ton of Eagle Ford and even Permian Basin crude just leaving the shores and going overseas. And what that does is it tightens, it it makes foreign governments and foreign economies take the U.S. seriously as a partner in areas and a sector of an economy that's so important that they otherwise weren't thinking about and allows us to play in a market against the Russians or the Saudis or the Iranians in a way that we never would have before. And, of course, we're a different kind of economy than them. We're a capitalist economy and a liberal uh, commercial uh, 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 government. So these kind of things 
trickle down and strengthen already strong um, relationships, say, with in Asia with the Japanese or in Europe with uh, NATO members. But it also kind of puts a little uh, idea in the in the head of those that may not have as close of relationships, either foreign policy or trade, and think, huh, maybe it would be a benefit over time to think about the U.S. as a strategic ally for energy. Yeah, and, you know, when you talk about a strategic ally with the United States, what's going on right now with Iran and Saudi Arabia um, is something uh, interesting to watch. And I believe it was your piece, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was your piece that talked about, uh, you know, that if this escalates and closes the Strait of Hormuz and we have 20% of the world's oil not getting to market, uh, the Mm -hmm. impact that that could have. Is that you that said that? I did say that. I'm not the only person to say that, and I, and I caution people to, to not expect. Uh, people have been trying to, to figure out you know, the, the Saudi crown and its relationship with its people for a very long time, and they've shown <laughs> themselves to be quite, to be quite uh, uh, have a sustainable model in terms of, of, of keeping, uh, keeping things in a stasis. But it would be a mistake to think that, you know, depending on your time frame, 20, 30, 40 years, dynamics change completely. And um, at some point, these escalations, which periodically happen uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia and and the sectarian issues that are in the Middle East right now, they continue to rise in a kind of ebb and flow. But the reality is a a breakthrough would be quite significant. and, and And the ability to have an insurance policy like we do now with the ability to export crude offshore uh, is, is a double whammy, a double benefit to the United States. Not only does it stop the volatility throughout the, the, the world in terms of the oil price, but it also would allow the U.S. to go and have foreign markets and have implicit demand take place uh, in, you know, in the United States itself. So there would, there would be business and there would be business flows and there would be current account benefits uh, that would take place regardless. And, and so it's a really kind of a, been a big mistake to underplay this export ban lifting. It's actually a very big deal. Yeah, it's interesting because as I talk to people in the industry, many of them have, have really kind of thought, oh, that's not, that's not a big deal. I mean, I have fought for, I've been in Washington, D.C., I've been talking to legislators, I've written columns. I mean, you know, people that read my work are probably like, is she on the export ban again? But I've been talking, <laughs> working on this for a year. And, yeah, I feel that um, way as well. Yeah, and you know my work's published in a lot of newspapers as well, and so people that even aren't that aren't in the industry read read what I write. At least I hope they do. They have the opportunity to, and I worked so hard on this. And then then it's like people some some industry folks like you know this is not that big a deal. The price is too low. It's not going to make any difference. And I think everybody was caught a bit off guard to see uh, oil leaving our shores so quickly. Right. Right. The, uh, the arbitrage, it's, it's, you know, oil prices are low everywhere, and there's it, a question whether or not these are just test cases. Their refineries all over have to figure out if the oil that's coming out of a, of a certain basin is actually, you know, refinable and worth refining. Uh, so a lot of these are just test runs, but the reality is once they gain a confidence in a basin, these prices, I mean, you know, they're not going to stay below 30 or $30 forever, $60, $70 oil, especially when you consider some of the Texas fields uh, so close to port in Corpus Christi in Houston, uh, it's not that hard to take it across the ocean for 5 or $6 uh, a barrel. And, uh, and who's to say, I mean, supplies, you know, the Middle East has is, is, uh, been burning now, smoldering for, for years, and there's some reason to believe that the reason that there's not a lot of intervention on the part of the superpowers is that oil prices are so low that they don't have to. If they were higher, 
we wouldn't be able to live this way. <laughs> so there's a certain counterintuitiveness to it. Yeah, it's it's fascinating fascinating to watch. So you you think that these these shipments are kind of test cases? I do, I do. I mean, the the the, the profits that are, that are available are probably pretty low. At the same time, some of this some of this um, condensate and really high API uh, crude is you know worth worth a premium, and. Uh, we will probably. Who's to say how many shipments? It'll be interesting to see by the end of this year how many shipments have gone over. It probably won't be in the hundreds of, of uh, ships, but it probably is higher than people think. And I assume it'll be so high enough that we'll quit celebrating each time a shipment leaves the shores. <laughs> yeah, that's true. No, that's true. Yeah, you brought up a point I just want to address quickly, that this particular grade of oil is worth the premium. And this is something I've tried to educate people on, the different grades and how refineries are configured. Can you address that a little bit? I can a tad, only that uh, there, the, the shale revolution or the tight oil revolution in the United States is essentially uh, light, sweet oil, which is low in sulfur and easier to refine. Uh, and a lot of refineries like that. There are a lot of refineries that have gone and refineries have different configurations. And so basically, if you're a simple refinery that hasn't don't have a lot of upgrade capacity, you want this kind of oil because it's simply easier and less expensive to turn into gasoline or diesel. Uh, but it just so happens that a lot of the uh, domestic uh, refining uh, population there on the Gulf Coast is can refine heavier crude. Uh, they've done that because Venezuelan and Mexican crude is heavy. And they can make money doing it because uh, uh, they can get uh, – it's not worth as much. So it's kind of like the difference between the silver and the gold. You, uh, gold is worth more, but uh, you'll take the silver. Uh, and uh, light crude is, is kind of the gold standard and is therefore has a lot of places to go. And it's actually – the lighter it gets, the, it's sold to a premium to the prices you see reported, say, West Texas Intermediate. So it is valuable. Uh, and the problem before the export ban was that you had you had markets you couldn't you couldn't export to, so we actually created an artificial uh, collapse in its price. It wasn't the real price that we were getting uh, for this crude coming out of the ground. Yeah, and that's why the lifting of the ban is so so helpful. Now, what kind of crude do we get from Saudi Arabia? Do you know? We get medium crude. I think it's called medium sour, um, and a lot of those go into the into the Gulf uh, into the Gulf refineries. What happens is you can mix and match. It's Maybe it's a bit like cooking. Uh, you can mix and match for the taste of the refinery. So medium crude is is uh, is easy to go either direction, but it's sou- it's more sour, so it takes a bit more energy to take that sulfur out. Um, but it's not heavy. Uh, they have heavy crude, but they the Saudis generally send them to, to India or other places in, uh, in Asia. Yeah, and when I asked about Saudi, what I really meant was Middle Eastern. I didn't really mean specifically Saudi, but that was uh, – so it's, it's interesting. So, you know, last last thing, we just got a minute, a little less than a minute left. Um, you know, what? how is this going to help America long term? Well, long term, it supports it supports the – you can look at it in a couple different ways. One, it obviously will help the trade balance – which has indirect effects on the strength of the dollar and uh, kind of implicit inflation in the country. Uh, there were periods in 2005 and six where we were importing 60% of our oil. We had enormous uh, factors uh, against our, um, our trade deficit, and that was lowering the price of the dollar and, and undermining m- 
basically having people choose which are which which over time undermines its strength as the as a reserve currency in the in the world. So that's why it kind of matters in the big picture. Small picture is that you're just going to have more demand for crude coming out of the mid-continent and you're going to have more drillers and more service industry people and more engineers and more lawyers and landsmen. All these things are supported by having more markets by which to sell your oil. That's that's the short and yeah. long answer. Yeah. Well, Bill Murray, I'm delighted to make your acquaintance. I appreciate you taking your time to join us today, and I hope you'll come back to America's Voice for Energy sometime in the future. And uh, it's been great to chat with you. Yeah, happy to do it. Thank you so much. We'll be right back with another segment of America's Voice for Energy. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. This has been an exciting week for the oil and gas industry in one respect. While prices have dipped to historic lows and that scary territory for the industry, at the same time, something positive has been going on. And that's what we've been talking about uh, in, in this show today, the lifting of the ban on exporting oil, which I've been working for all year long, been in Washington, D.C., fighting for that ban to be lifted. But also in the same week, we have the first shipment of LNG leaving our shores in decades. And I'm excited to have with me as my closing guest a new guest, someone I hope will be a new friend, but I just discovered Dr. Kent Moores in doing research for this column. And I ran across uh, uh, his website, which is called Oil and Energy Investor. And he had written a piece on the day that the export ban was lifted, because you recall, President Obama signed the omnibus spending deal on December 18th, and language to lift the oil export ban was a part of that. He wrote a piece on December 18th titled, Here are the four real reasons behind lifting, behind the lifting of the U.S. oil export ban. And in his piece, I captured a line of his because I love the optimism and enthusiasm, and I included this piece in my column. He says, we lead the world in what can be accomplished with private property and profit incentives with a fair amount of entrepreneurial skill for good measure. And, and Kent, I just think that that so beautifully captures the American oil and gas success story. And so I'm thrilled today to have you as our guest and to welcome you to America's Voice for Energy. Well, thank you so much. So tell us, you know, in your view, um, have you, what do you, why do you think, and obviously I've read your piece, but our listeners probably have not, why do you think it was important to lift the oil export ban? Well, uh, to begin with, the band itself was an anachronism. 
it was set up after the uh, Yom Kippur War in 1973-74. At the time, there was an, an Arab OPEC uh, embargo uh, against exporting crude oil to either the United States or, as it turns out, the Netherlands uh, as a political uh, maneuver. It created a real crisis in the U.S. It also required we set up a strategic petroleum reserve to prevent that from ever happening again. Well, two things here. Number one, we subsequently dis discovered a huge largesse of unconventional shale and pipe oil in the United States. Um, we are now going to be producing between 9.2 and 9.5 million barrels a day in the U.S., higher than we've ever seen uh uh, since the, uh, the, the early 1970s. Now, let, let me stop you there for just a sec, if I may. When you're quoting those numbers, are those our potential? Is that what we're doing right now? Is that what we're doing uh, before we had to shut down a lot of wells? Where, where is that number? Well, there, there are a couple of interesting things here uh, as well. This is the preliminary estimate for the end of 2015. So it's important okay. fact okay. we just finished. But the other thing is, even though we know darn well that oil uh, hovering around $30 a barrel has caused some significant cuts in, in forward uh, capital expenditures, we are still producing more in the United States with the existing wells than we ever have because of right. increased technical efficiency, uh, multiple wells per pad. And that increased technical better. efficiency goes right to your line that I was quoting Absolutely. there. It's that human ingenuity. Yeah, Absolutely. go ahead. So. Absolutely. So, but in any event, the um, uh, the threat of another export ban to the United States, it, it simply isn't going to happen again. Number one, we're not nearly as dependent. In fact, we're not really dependent at all now on imports, so the situation has changed. But secondly, there's no major producer out there in the world that's going to shoot them in the foot by not exporting oil and generating revenues, especially in this environment, uh, to, to what is still the, the, the largest uh, market, the largest economy in the world. So it, it no longer makes sense from a policy standpoint. It no longer makes sense from a standpoint of maintaining uh, domestic prices either. As you know, if you've been to Washington, it happens every time I go to Washington, there's still a cadre inside the Beltway that says, well, if you export anything like crude oil or liquefied natural gas, it's simply going to increase the price of oil products or products based on natural gas that are consumed in the U.S. And yeah, that's, that's their standard talking point. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, and that's, there's a standard answer to this. Um, and that is we now have so much extractable reserves in the United States. Uh, just take a look at, at, uh, at the gas side, for example. We could increase the overall production of natural gas in the U.S. by 25% per year into the foreseeable future. Now, nobody's going to do that, especially in the current environment. You're going to destroy right, what's right. left of the market. But the fact is uh, exporting gas or exporting oil is no longer a net uh, reduction from low prices in the U.S. The only things it does, and he, these are the two primary reasons why this finally took place, uh, the, the removal of, of the export ban. Number one is you're, is you're maintaining American jobs. And number two, you're maintaining local tax bases. And in an election year, the combination of jobs and local revenue uh, is a dynamite argument. This has nothing to do with, some people would like to go a little further and say, great, it's about time we take the fight to the Saudis 
in higher-priced markets elsewhere in the world where the Saudi exports themselves are vulnerable. Remember, the Saudis export a very high sulfur-level crude. So you move any better-quality crude into a market that is currently serviced by the Saudis, and uh, in the case of of, uh, Asia, for example, if you're able to cut a bit that Asian premium where they regularly pay more than elsewhere in the world for the same imports, you're likely to be cutting into the Saudi source of revenue. But this is what people forget. You go back to Thanksgiving Day, 2014, and the Saudi-led decision by OPEC to maintain production uh, under the guise of maintaining um, market share. Market share, yeah. Every every pundit immediately said, well, they're finally attacking the, the unconventional producers in the United States. What they missed was the initial objective of that was to keep the Russians out of the Asian market. The Russians had finished the ESPL export pipeline. They were they were moving a better quality crude into Asia from Pacific ports in direct competition to the Saudis. It was a it was a lower sulfur content crude, and they were selling it less expensively. Every survey that I see, every survey I do indicates the bulk of global demand is moving heavily toward Asia clear through 2035. Asia is the primary battlefield for energy exporters moving forward. The Saudis cannot survive their current budgetary difficulties. OPEC can't survive the current collective budgetary difficulties without putting a primary emphasis on exports to Asia. So their first objective was to get the Russians out of the Asian market short term, and they do that by lowering the price of oil to the point where the Russians simply can't afford to export a large amount of it on the ESPO pipeline. That was their initial objective, and they won. The second objective was to um, uh, was to go after the American producers. And here's the interesting thing. And I, I, I talk to these people all the time. I just came back from Abu Dhabi where I had meetings uh, with, with OPEC folks and, and uh, uh, Persian Gulf producers and so on. Everybody knows that the United States has no direct impact on the global price of oil until we start exporting crude. And the reason for that is and the reason for that is the only way we impact it until we start exporting crude is indirectly dependent on the amount we import determines the supply that's available elsewhere. Now what we have is a situation that people in OPEC were really worried about. And that is, we're going to—they're going to start seeing a revved-up direct competition from American-produced uh, food elsewhere in the world, and that's exactly what they didn't want. So the, the, the Saudis have painted themselves into a corner. OPEC has had to suspend their monthly quotas effectively because nobody's obeying them anyway. You're in a situation where the price of oil goes down. You have OPEC members that are entirely dependent upon the revenue flow to be able to allow uh, any vestige of trying to balance their own domestic budgets. And in order to do that, they now have to overproduce, oversell at a lower price to get any revenue whatsoever. The the, the uh, decision to maintain production, not only cut prices, but a guaranteed overproduction, which will cut prices further, that is now creating massive financial difficulties from one end of OPEC to the other. Look at what the Saudis are doing. For the first time in almost 20 years, the Saudis are now going into the Eurobond market, 
and they just announced they're probably going to be seriously considering selling shares in Saudi Aramco, something that nobody thought would be possible, um, you know, only a year ago. So even the Saudis, the Saudis are running a huge deficit every month. They can afford to do that. Other OPEC members simply cannot. You look at Venezuela or Libya or Nigeria, uh, they are now in financial meltdown. Uh, my last estimate for Venezuela was that uh, they would need an average price of crude oil, about $183 a barrel, to have any uh, chance whatsoever of, of uh, balancing their budget. And that simply isn't going to happen. You're going to have direct riots. We've already begun, begun seeing these in Caracas and elsewhere in Venezuela because of the low price of oil. So it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's amazing. Yeah. And into all of this, you know, you want to get you want to get the U.S. angry. The last thing you want is American competition someplace else, and that's not exactly what's happening. Yeah, we're in a, we're in a whole new world, and especially when you throw LNG imports into that, uh, we're we're nearly out of time. And I, I obviously I should have scheduled you for for two segments because I, I'm thrilled to have made your acquaintance because you've got such great insights. Um, but I did it really a terrible job introducing you. I mentioned your website and how I found you, but I didn't give your website address or anything about who you are or what you really do. Could you share that with us in closing? Sure. Um, the, the website is www.oilandenergyinvestor, all one word, dot com. Uh, there are actually uh, six energy investment services I run out of Money Map Press in Baltimore. We've got a bit over 300,000 subscribers now. Oil and Energy Investor is a free front-end service, so people can get that for nothing. Um, my, my life has been somewhat interesting. I'm currently, in addition to, to everything I do for the energy investment services, I am the executive chairman um, of the Energy Capital Research Group, and we put out a number of, of significant studies on all aspects of energy. We also have within that something called the Global Energy Symposium, and there I've brought together some of the top names in the world in energy, and we will start rolling out uh, policy recommendations to both uh, national governments and international agencies. Uh, in addition to that, I run my own international um, oil and gas advisory company called ACEDA, that one's so old, people people call it a CETA now, but that's short for American Soviet Investment and Development Associates. That was set up in 1988, and I got my I, I cut my teeth in, in the Soviet and then early uh, Russian and post-Soviet markets. Um, I also have done a considerable amount of government service. I have advised or currently advised 27 governments worldwide on their policy. Um, State Department sends me out on a regular basis to give advisories to various governments, especially developing governments. Um, I also am a partner in a company that provides uh, field and other services to the uh, shale industry in Poland and elsewhere in Europe. So as I used to tell my graduate students, I was a university professor until I retired a couple of years ago. I kept telling them, you know, uh, if you think you know what you're going to do when you grow up, you're going to be pleasantly surprised. The world changes, and you've got to grab opportunities when they emerge. Um, so, I mean, the bottom line is that yeah. right now I'm having a lot of fun. 
Good. Well, no wonder I couldn't introduce you so so well. I mean, there's so much so much there. I'm pleased that you were you joined us. I hope you'll join us again uh, on America's Voice for Energy. I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you often. We've been talking with Dr. Kent Moores, and uh, you just heard his website, oilandenergyinvestor.com. Please stay tuned next week for another edition of America's Voice for Energy. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.